Welcome to the Auditorium, a portal to the fringes of culture. Ooh, we've been in the studio quite a while now, Dave, I am we? beat. Um, it's, uh, it's my bedtime. What, uh, what time do you make? Guys, 23 minutes past 11 already, blimey. 23.23? I suppose that is it, yes. Yeah. What's Odd that, isn't it? What day is it today? Oh, 23rd. Oh, 23rd today? That's kind of weird. How many nipples have you got? Well, that's ridiculous. I've got... Oh, my... 23. I've got... Are you never... finding the number 23 just keeps cropping up all the time? Yeah. In this conversation, for starters. Well, it's everywhere. We, You know, the road that... The road you come in to, to do the recording... A, A23. A23. And I, I live at number 23. I live at number 23. Oh, and uh, hang on, what po- what podcast is this? This is pod twenty. No, eleven. No, it's eleven. Eleven. It's eleven. Sorry, it's eleven. Go for that. Right. That's all right. Well, that's that solved. But all um, the, all these twenty three coincidences, they um, yeah. they they came from William Burroughs, didn't they? They came from William Burroughs, who talked, I didn't. I don't think he was the originator of it. Was he? he? Was, I think he was. Was he? I, I think he was. Okay. I think he was. The the, the, the whole idea that, that there was some sacred some, number. Yeah, some yeah. some synchronicities and strangeness around the number twenty three, which which was passed down to other like-minded souls and it, and it's uh, there's even a film now isn't there a terrible film called 23 there is a, there is a film yeah and uh, and this was picked up by Robert Anton Wilson and Robert Shea who put all of the conspiracies and crazy ideas of the of the well, not crazy but um, um, out there ideas of the of the 60s and early 70s into into a book they collaborated on called the Illuminatus yes trilogy yes I've read one of them me too me too that would uh, do <laughs> it wants enough. It it messes with your brain, doesn't it? Yeah. And this book was, or these, this, the trilogy was turned into an eight-hour-long epic science fiction uh, theatre production by by the the late great Ken Campbell. Ken Campbell. Ken Campbell. Who people will know from such things as uh, Till Death Has Do Part and his amazing documentary series about reality, reality on the rocks, and what was the other one? Brain spotting. Brain spotting on yeah. Channel Four back in the nineties. But also, if if that isn't ringing any bells. Enormous eyebrows, uh, a voice like sandpaper and glue. Yes, and uh, and and a cameo in Faulty Towers where he plays the uh, the annoying friend in That's the anniversary right. edition where he goes, Sibyl Manuel. And the reason why we're talking about Ken Campbell and Twenty Threes in the Illuminatus trilogy is because our guest speaker today is Daisy Campbell, daughter of Ken, and Daisy has taken up the mantle of her father's epic work with science fiction theatre, in that she has she's she's looked at another body of work by Robert Anton Wilson, the Cosmic Trigger trilogy which is kind of the backstory the autobiography of what was going on in the 70s when uh, Wilson uh, had written those books and the stage version was put on and there's a lot of tragedy around this as well he lost his daughter was murdered there was uh, other family tragedies that were happening and and Wilson had a bit of a breakdown and was invited by the cast to to escape you know the the issues that were happening at home and come to to Liverpool and take take a, a role in the play and uh, and he you know he, he pretty much said you know ken campbell and his cast saved him from you know really spiraling into sort of a bad dark depression and uh, i think it's the only time that ken ever got arts council funding for any <laughs> anything that he ever did most of the money went on paying for, for, for robertson wilson to, to be flown over but anyway so daisy uh, has created a new monumental piece of theater based on uh, robertson wilson's work they got um, alan moore to do the voice of the computer fuck up um, <laughs> in the play and this this is daisy speaking at the auditorium in the Spiegel tent in Brighton 2014, talking about the journey that she went on building up to the creation of this monumental piece of, uh, of new theatre work. Here's Daisy Campbell. 
I want to take you back to this moment that I experienced 10 years ago. It was a couple of weeks after the sudden and untimely death of my father, Ken Campbell, and I was standing at the crossing point of a number of cobbled streets in Liverpool in the rain, and I was looking up at this bust of Carl Jung, and that was kind of weird because right at that moment I was in the middle of writing an essay about Carl Jung for this um, master's degree that I was doing, but that wasn't why I was there. I wasn't alone. Stood next to me was Prunella G, Chris Langham, and this chap Peter Halligan, and we're all looking up at this bust of Carl Jung. And the bust is there because Carl Jung had a dream about Liverpool. And he wrote about it in his book, Memories, Dreams and Reflections, on page, remember this, 223. And, uh, and he reckoned that this dream about Liverpool was the most important dream he'd ever had. In it, he realised that Liverpool represented to him the pool of life. And I'm writing this essay about Jung's ideas of the collective unconscious and synchronicity, a phrase that he coined, and now I'm looking up at this bust of his head. And the bust has only been erected where it is because of the tireless campaigning of this chap that I'm stood next to, Peter Halligan. Because Peter Halligan reckons that this spot is the exact spot of Jung's dream. The other odd thing is that just to the side on the same building is this circular plaque and it says on it, the Liverpool School of Language, Music, Dream and Pun. And that plaque has also only been erected due to the tireless campaigning of this chap, Peter Halligan, because 40 years previously, when Halligan first found this illustrious Jung dream site after a not inconsiderable quest, um, he noticed that the building on the uh, crossing point of two of these streets was in fact derelict. So he claimed it and he turned it into a community centre and a cafe and he called it the Liverpool School of Language, Music, Dream and Pun. And the first production to go on there was a nine-hour epic staged by my father, Ken Campbell, called Illuminatus, starring amongst many other people, my mother, Prunella G, as Eris, goddess of chaos and confusion, co-adapted with Chris Langham and based on the novels by Robert Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson. And we're all there now, really, to pay tribute to my dad and this incredible production. And I say to everyone, you know, it's funny, actually, because right at this moment, I'm writing an essay about Jung, and I've realised that although it's a distance course that I'm doing, it is, in fact, based at John Moores University, Liverpool. At which point, Peter Halligan says, oh, yeah, John Moores, yeah, yeah, he knew your dad's dad. I said, really? See, yeah, yeah, yeah. He knew your grandfather. He went to your grandfather with this business venture that he had, but your grandfather declined. It turns out it was the football pools, right? <laughs> and it made John Moores a multi-millionaire, which was how come he had the money to build this university where I was now studying Jung. And my head was starting to spin a little bit at this point, at which point my mum turned to me and she said, well, you do know you were conceived in that building, don't you? <laughs> I said, what? I said, surely you were far too busy staging the greatest show on planet world. And she said, well, it was nine hours long. There were some dull bits. <laughs> so, so I'm standing on the spot where I was conceived, which is also the site of Jung's most important dream, looking at a bust of Jung whilst writing an essay about Jung at a university built with money, which would have been mine, were it not for the lack of business acumen of my paternal grandfather, when my father 
staged this incredible epic that was to change the lives of everyone involved. And my mother played Eris, goddess of chaos and confusion, which then became my middle name. And they say there's nothing to this synchronicity, Lark. So the funny thing is that um, growing up, I knew all about the sort of legends surrounding this production of Illuminatus, but my dad was always a little bit cagey about letting me actually get my hands on a copy. So it wasn't until I was um, in my early 20s, 23 to be exact, that I actually finally got around to reading Illuminatus. And how to describe it? It was like being initiated into a magical order that almost everyone I knew was already an initiate of. It was like I could finally speak the, the language of my tribe. You know, I could spot 23s with the best of them. I knew all about the ancient battle of the Bavarian Illuminati and the Discordians. Hey, Alaris. And, um, you know, I, I understood the, the true meaning of the eye and the pyramid on every dollar bill, why communication is only possible between equals, uh, why you can never trust any government and why you should never whistle while you're pissing and <laughs> and um, and then I began to see meaning and synchronicity everywhere and life became too meaningful and then I began to understand the foolishness of giving your only child the middle name Eris and I flipped out and I found myself in a very plush loony bin somewhere in Kent um anyway the, yeah the morning after I arrived I um I had rainbow knickers on my head for important cosmic reasons. And um, the other inmates kind of gathered round me to find out what new nutters the night had blown in. And they said, so, you know, what are you doing here? And I said, synchronicity has led me here. Uh, and so completely trusting was I in all the signs and symbols that I was now receiving on a kind of hourly basis um, that I said, the reason why I'm here is contained in that magazine. And there was this woman clutching soap opera magazine. And, uh, and I said, yeah, if you would just lend me your magazine, I will open it at any random page. It will tell me exactly what it is I'm doing here. So she handed me the magazine. I opened it up at a completely random page. And in big pink letters across a double page spread, it said, Daisy must lose some of her passion. So that's what Daisy did. And, uh, and 10 years later, I honestly thought I'd got that old crazy maker heiress back in her box. But, you know, that's the kind of wonderful and slightly worrying thing about this book, Illuminatus, because just about everyone I know who has read and loved that book has got a pretty similar story to tell. I mean, they're not all quite so extreme. Some are a lot more extreme. But, um, you know, p bizarre synchronicities are pretty standard. And then there's quite often a tale of, of what Stanislav Grof would call a spiritual emergency and what the rest of the medical establishment would call temporary psychosis. These are the kind of experiences that Robert Anton Wilson actually writes about in his, in his autobiographical book, Cosmic Trigger, which uh, he calls a journey through Chapel Perilous. This is like a, a dangerous crossing point brought about, uh, usually not always, through researching the occult, and from which one can only emerge either agnostic or paranoid. And when he says agnostic, he doesn't just mean agnostic about God, he means agnostic about everything. Which then put me in mind of what my dad always used to say to me. So he used to say, now listen, Daisy, don't... <laughs> Don't believe anything, right? Nothing which is the product of a human mind is a fitting subject for your belief. <laughs> but 
You can suppose anything, and you should, because supposing is very mind-expanding, you see. But, uh, you know, so supposing flying saucers, suppose fairies, you know, suppose God, if you must. I suppose you could suppose that one of the big religions had got it right, right down to the last nut and bolt. But listen, Daisy, don't believe it. (laughs) Or as Wilson used to say, more succinctly, Convictions cause convicts. So, I was in this loony bin somewhere in Kent, and I had these rainbow knickers on my head. Uh, and th- what, what I was attempting to do with these rainbow knickers, incidentally, I was attempting to regulate the, the flow of cosmic pronoid synchronicities. Um, so, I believe that um, paranoids favour tinfoil, but I was pronoid, so I thought rainbow knickers felt more apt. Um, and by pronoid, I mean I had the creeping sensation that everyone everywhere was out to help me. Um, and um, so I, it's coming on again actually. And um, <laughs> so I was holding forth to this bunch of inmates there in my rainbow knickers about, um, about my dad's notions of artist's choice. Uh, do you know this one? So, According to my dad, there were three choices for the artist. Choice one, you can entertain, distract, and therefore deceive, thus helping to sustain the status quo. Choice two, you can pose as exposing wrongs, but in fact deceive, and thus help to sustain the status quo. Choice three, you can expose wrongs and bring about change. But this, according to my dad, was not possible because if you really know what's going on, then you've got to sign something to say that you won't tell anyone. But there may possibly be a fourth choice. To pose as exposing wrongs, but in fact deceive, but with such a willful mix of truth and lie, research and fantasy, so inscrutably compounded as to send the status quo, hunting for needles that nobody's lost in haystacks that don't exist, thus distracting from the ensuing release of hitherto imprisoned forces, which will bring about change, but of an unpredictable nature. And there was this guy sort of stood back from the rest of the group who was looking at me very suspiciously. He wasn't pleased about the arrival of Rainbow Girl at all. And he looked me right in the eye and he said, so how long have you been stuck up your father's asshole?" <laughs> so it's 10 years since I was reading Daisy Must Lose Some of Her Passion and it's five years since I was looking up at the Young Bust. It's 35 years since my dad was standing in Compendium Bookshop in Camden looking for science fiction books that he might quite like to adapt because he's just had a phone call from this chap, Peter Halligan, to say, hey, come and stick a show on at the Liverpool School of Language, Music, Dream and Pun. So he's got his little pile of science fiction books because he's got this notion that science fiction theatre is the way forward because, as he used to say, um, when you think about it, the entire history of literature is nothing more than people coming in and out of doors. <laughs> Whereas science fiction is about everything else. Uh, yeah, so you had this notion about science fiction theatre. So anyway, and then he got to the counter and he saw that there was a book on the counter that had a yellow submarine on the front. He thought, hello, here, this is interesting. Because did I mention that the Liverpool School of Language, Music, Dream and Pun is about a minute's walk from the Cavern Club where the Beatles first performed. So he thought, yellow submarine, Illuminatus, yeah. He thought, all right, I'll test it. 
so Jung's dream, he wrote about that on page 223. So I'll open this book to page 223. And if it's interesting, I'll stick on an adaptation of this. He opened it up to page 223. And who should be mentioned but Carl Gustav Jung? So... Ten years since the Rainbow Knickers, five years since, uh, since Jung's bust, and I get a phone call to say, would I meet to discuss the possibility of staging Illuminatus? And I thought about my dad's worried face every time anyone mooted that possibility, and I thought about the Rainbow Knickers, and I thought about how I'm supposed to be getting out of my dad's arsehole, so I declined. But then two days later, I got another phone call from someone completely unrelated who knew nothing about the first phone call, asking me, would it be possible to meet to discuss the possibility of staging Illuminatus? And I thought, okay, here we go. Illuminatus-related synchronicities are back. And I'm not sure I'm going to be able to outrun them this time. But I knew I didn't want to do Illuminata, so I was thinking, okay, well, what's the logical next step? And then I thought, well, what was the book that Wilson wrote after Illuminata? It was this autobiographical book, Cosmic Trigger, that I mentioned about his journey through Chapel Perilous. And, um, you know, and then I picked up a battered copy of this book, and I was reminded... It's dedicated to my dad and the Science Fiction Theatre of Liverpool. And he writes about coming over to London to meet with, meet with my dad, meet the cast, gets dared to do a cameo in the Black Mass scene by my mum. And he writes about all of this on page 223. So I thought, great, so my dad can have a part in it. My mum can be a character in it. How fantastic. Yes, all right, I'll do that. And so I got to work. And it's a, it's a great book, this Cosmic Trigger book. It sort of details what happened to Wilson uh, as a result of of having written this extraordinary book, Illuminatus. You know, he gets into sort of Alistair Crowley and a lot of acid and um, helps found the Church of Discordia that worships the the goddess of uh, chaos, confusion, discord and international relations. And then um, tunes into a 6,500-year-old dialogue with with dog star Sirius. I mean, it's fabulous stuff. Anyway, so I was was underway with the, the draft and then I started floundering about and thought oh God, is it all a bit cosmic and daft for modern sophisticates? And is there really an audience for Robert Anton Wilson-related theatre out there anymore, you know? And then I got a phone call from my mum, the original chaos of, uh, the original goddess of chaos and confusion, to say that this author chap, John Higgs, has just been by to get a picture of her as Eris, and I must phone him immediately. So I did, and we met up, and it turns out we both live in Brighton, and he said, yes, there is an audience for Robert Anton Wilson-related theatre, and I know where to find them. And he booked me in to talk at the, uh, in London at this uh, horse hospital gig. And it, went, it was to spark a kind of avalanche of enthusiasm, this talk, and offers of help, an incredible production team came together. Uh, you know, this thing is now sort of happening. It's, 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 it's full steam ahead, and it's all I can do to sort of hang on for the ride. It, it, it keeps growing. And so then my mind turned to, well, how am I going to fund this thing? And then my, um, my partner said to me, isn't the clue of how to fund this contained within the last scene? Wilson's Home, 2007. He's an old man now. A letter plops through the letterbox. He slowly manoeuvres himself to pick it up. Excuse the American accent, I'll do my best. In 1975, I lost the ability to know when something was about to come through the door. It wasn't all that useful a skill anyway. It's a check for $23, how funny. Then another letter plops through the letterbox. He opens it. It's another check for $23. And another. 
And another. Okay, something fishy's going on. Time to consult the oracle. He fires up his laptop. Type in Robert and Tom Wilson, $23 and magic. Okay, guys, time to support cosmic thinking patriarch Robert Anton Wilson, whose infirmity and depleted finances have put him in the precarious position of not being able to meet next month's rent or his medical costs. His last wish is to die in his home, but he cannot afford this option. Robert Anton Wilson will one day be remembered alongside literary philosophers like Aldous Huxley and James Joyce. I don't know about that. But right now, Bob is a human being in a rather painful flesh suit who needs our help. I refuse for the history books to say he died alone and destitute, and I want future generations to know that we appreciated Robert Anton Wilson while he was alive. If Bob Wilson changed your life, send him $23 now. Another envelope plops in, followed immediately by another and another. They are clogging in the letterbox. Then the whole door starts to strain, eventually bursting open, and an avalanche of envelopes pours into the room. Bob, all white, long beard and twinkly eyes, stares in delighted disbelief. So really, tonight is a plea for help. Has Robert Anton Wilson changed your life? Has Ken Campbell changed your life? Has a bizarre stream of synchronicities led to you being here tonight? Have you had your own journey through Chapel Perilous? Then please help us to resurrect the wonderful ideas of Robert Anton Wilson into a world that needs to speciate out of its current stupidity. As Robert Anton Wilson used to say, think how stupid the average person is. Well, statistically, half of them are even stupider than that. So we're launching a crowdfund on May 23rd, and wonderfully, who should get in touch but John Moore's grandson, James Moore's, and he will be donating us some money. And then our Liverpool gig, where we went and did uh, Bob's first trip, we staged Bob's, Bob's first trip wonderfully, and at the end of it, about 123 of us all paraded our way through the uh, streets of Liverpool down to Young's bust where I placed a ceremonial pair of rainbow knickers upon, uh, upon Jung's head as cosmic protection for Discordians. And as I looked up at the benickered bust of Carl Gustav Jung, I understood why his Liverpool dream was so significant. It was the moment where he realised he was finally out of Freud's asshole. Thank you very much. Daisy Campbell there with her talk on Cosmic Trigger and the wonderful, epic theatre production that she's, uh, she's created. And The original was 24 hours, wasn't it? Well, well no. Oh, the, no, that's the warp. The, Sorry, the warp, yeah. So, yeah. so Daisy is, is following in the tradition of her, of her father, as we discussed at the beginning, Ken Campbell, mm. who was uh, legendary for, for creating mammoth productions. Enormous plays. Uh, one of Ken's uh, favourite lines was, um, if it's not impossible, it's not worth doing. And, and, <laughs> and that was the approach that he took to theatre. So yeah. I think when challenged to create the world's longest play, you know, he ro- rose to the challenge and co-wrote The Warp with mm. a, a writer called Neil Oram, which was 24 hours long. The actor who has to play Phil Masters it has to learn the equivalent of five times the script of Hamlet and be on stage for nearly all of it. Shoot. And That's what else did they do? So the, Illum- the Illuminatus originally was eight hours long. That was the first play that they did and that helped launch the careers of people like Bill Nye, uh, Jim Broadbent, uh, Bill it's Drummond. It's a roll call. It is an amazing. extraordinary amount of people. Bill, uh, Bob Hoskins worked with Ken back in the early days and then from then on, you know, they were flying with, with stuff. So War of the Newts, I believe that they 
flooded a warehouse <laughs> because the story is all based around these uh, newts from outer space. And I think, I could be wrong on this, I think the audience got in the water and then the actors dressed as newts paraded around the edge of the, uh, of the, of the you know, converted swimming pool space. Oh, fabulous. And then Ken directed The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which was a huge flop eventually because too much money was put at it and not enough strong ideas, I think. But, they, mm. but his idea was that um, the audience would move around on a hovercraft, like a hovercraft, <laughs> around, it would hover between different stages where the actors were, were all performing. I remember a story that, uh, that I heard about Ken, where he was asked to direct a play, and he read the script, and uh, and, and he thought the script was bollocks, uh, and uh, and so he was sort of scratching his head, and then eventually he said, um, he said, let's have a couple of pigs on stage for this. It's the, the only thing that will that will save this play. It's <laughs> two two pigs <laughs> fighting each other. A bit of wild. Uh, yeah, um, well, he of course, he, but he was a master of the long form. Even if you just went to go and see one of his shows. One of his one-man shows. They could be two and a half hours long. Well, yeah. I, I went to see him do... I'm pretty sure it was three and a half to four hours. Didn't feel like it because he's he's endlessly fascinating man, mm. but um, mm. extraordinarily gifted and fecund in a, as a public speaker. Nice use of the word fecund. Eh? Nice. Uh, and so hats off to Daisy because uh, yeah. it's... Terrific. Uh, you know, it, it, nice it is something that. that... It is, it is. Um, and uh, and it's, been, it's been much missed in, in the British theatre scene, That's certainly. That's true. In recent there really years. was no one else turning out. It's also bloody worthy. Um, <laughs> so as a, friend, as a friend of ours, actually a friend of ours, uh, Ross, said, uh, and I like this idea about changes in British culture, at least, that when church numbers you know, sort of drastically declined post-war, the middle classes didn't know what to do to feel better about themselves. And mm. so they went to the theatre instead. Um, they weren't going to enjoy it, but they felt that it was, it was something they felt duty bound to do. To yes, improve improve themselves and as a consequence theatre's been far too worthy ever since and I think there's a grain of truth in that apart from the stuff that we do I have yes our our stuff is obviously marvellous but yes I have other theories about that about the anti-evolutionary sense of uh, arts funding but we won't go into that the thing that unifies uh, a lot of the work that Ken and Daisy now doing is synchronicity and conspiracy theories and the great this all goes back to the Illuminatus trilogy and the one of the key conspiracy theories, which is what is the eye in the pyramid doing on That's the dollar right. bill? Now, you've done some research into into this on other currency, haven't you? Well, the funny thing is everyone knows about the dollar and the Illuminati sign, and the, but of course there, there are many, many Illuminati signs uh, hidden in plain sight, like the owl, you know, for example, Moloch, which seen from the air... Um, Washington is in the shape, was designed in the shape of the air. Always, always, they're everywhere. And Leamington Spa. Leamington Spa and Dudley. But uh, the, the point is that these are all over the place. They're not just uh, on, on the dollar. They're on, uh, on high-denomination British notes as well and high-denomination notes from all over the world. That's extraordinary. But the trouble is, of course, people don't know they're there. Um, and and we, we do. We know where they are. So our competition for this week is listeners for you to send us in your 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 notes uh, and we will identify where those illuminati symbols are and then we are going to uh, post the results on our website that's extraordinary. That, I mean, that's quite a challenge. Uh, and uh, I hope a lot of listeners are going to take that up because I, I'm certainly fascinated to, to, to know. In fact, I've got... I've got oh, a, have you got one there? Got yes. £50 note here, David. Do you want to... So we'll, we'll get the... I'm going to get the ball rolling. OK, here's Here you a go. 50. Thank you. So oh, where, right, so where are you... Where, on that, what are you saying is that... Well, look, if you look at, at the back there, there's, oh a, there's a group God. scene. Can you see, can you yeah. see that there's Henry Kissinger yeah. and other members of the Bilderberg group? And just behind, um, I think that's the look. Just there, that, you can see the Chuckle I Brothers. I never noticed. Now the that. Chuckle Brothers are 
not a lot of people know this, but the Chuckle Brothers are one of the most influential couple of people in Bohemia Grove. Basically, they do the entertainment at Bohemia Grove. You see, I wouldn't have spotted that without giving you my £50. Exactly. And a lot of people are in the same position all over the world, but it's only on the high denomination note. So if you can send them to us, we will... This really could make a big difference well, to, to your life. Do you, want to be, do you want to be sheeple or do you want to be people? Exactly. Send exactly. it to us. So please, please, look, for your own benefit, send your high denominational bills to us and we will, we will take basically the scales from your eyes. We'll what could well be more valuable? There. So that's Mr. Mountfield and Dr. Bramwell, Auditorium, Podcast, England sellotape them to a postcard or maybe no, put them inside an envelope that's probably safer isn't it put, put them, them in inside an envelope, an envelope but for goodness sake for goodness sake please make sure that they're in some kind of silver foil because you know what it you know yeah and I don't want to say any more people are watching mm-hmm shoot it's 23 past we better get going yeah what bus are you getting I'm the number 23 23 The Auditorium is presented by Dr. David Bramwell and Mr. David Mountfield. The producers are Lance Dan and Andrew Nailing. You can discover more about the show at oddpodcast.com, where you can find out about upcoming events and festival shows. If you'd like to give a talk about something that you're passionate about, then email us at contact at oddpodcast.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at oddpodcastuk. Talks from the Auditorium are featured in Earnest Journal, a magazine for the curious and adventurous. If you like the Auditorium, then please leave a review for us on iTunes. <laughs>